0: Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your everyday with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code MSheet at ViaHemp.com. That's V I I A H E M P dot com.
2: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners.
3: Visit SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery. Content
1: warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of a child and general murder and violence. It also contains some profanity.
0: Shortly after taking over the Burger Chef case for the Indiana State Police, Bill Dalton made an inexplicable choice. Supposedly without telling any of his superiors, he decided to share all the confidential files in the case with a podcaster named Ashley Flowers so that the two of them could create a show about the case called Red Ball. Perhaps the reason for Dalton's costly error could be his own investigative inexperience. When he was promoted in 2018 to serve as the Indianapolis District Investigations Commander the ISP press release did not tout even one investigative success during his time in the state police. Instead, it boasted that Dalton played an important role in special events planning and coordination. In short, he did things like plan security for events like the Bicentennial Torch Relay. Maybe he was good at that sort of thing, but it doesn't seem to have prepared him for making intelligent choices about the Burger Chef case and working with flowers seemed like an unexpected decision as well. The South Bend, Indiana native told the website Entreprenista in April 2021 that she briefly worked with, quote, worms and spider DNA in a lab for a bit before moving to a medical device startup and then a software sales position. She founded AudioChuck, her production company, in October of 2017 and has served as its CEO ever since. At some point, she landed on the board of Crime Stoppers of Central Indiana and began appearing on the Indianapolis radio station W Now for a program called Murder Monday, according to a Variety article from Todd Spangler. The reason why we're talking about all this now is that Dalton's decision to favor flowers would have far-ranging consequences. He would be publicly reprimanded and embarrassed. But more importantly, other investigations would suffer. State troopers, scared of repeating Dalton's blunder, would become wary of spreading the word about their own cases, and so people with potentially actionable information about those cases never even got a chance to hear about them. You may have noticed that this episode is much longer than normal. It turns out that people have quite a bit to say about Ashley Flowers. We wanted to let them all be heard. and We also did not want to spend the next month doing episodes devoted to this mess. Our solution was to do it all in one extra long program. If you're all caught up about the plagiarism accusations involving Crime Junkie, feel free to skip ahead to about the last 45 minutes where we'll discuss the burger chef's situation.
1: I actually had a bit of a backstage seat for some of this, and I will share with you for the first time my impressions and memories of what happened. We will also give you context and background on Ashley Flowers, the woman Dalton chose to trust with information that even the families of the victims never received.
0: My name is Anya Kane,
1: And I'm Kevin Greenlee.
0: And we're The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast.
1: We're continuing the multi-part look into the Burger Chef murders we began last year. Each week, we will be presenting you with new information and context about what happened as part of our mini-series, You Never Can Forget.
0: We don't just rely on what we've been told or what we've read. We have worked this case ourselves. We decided to do this podcast so we can tell you what we've learned and even clear up a few misconceptions. We're The Murder Sheet.
1: And this is You Never Can Forget, The Fiasco.
0: understand Ashley Flowers and Crime Junkie, you have to know how she's viewed within the world of true crime podcasting. On the one hand, this weekly show has experienced success from nearly day one. Podcasters still remark about how Crime Junkie almost immediately attracted droves of short, nearly identical five-star reviews, and how the show maintained its high position on various charts from the jump when they kicked off in December of 2017. It is also fair to say that the show cultivated loyal fans. Today, 333,000 people follow the Crime Junkie Facebook page, while 173,000 belong to the corresponding discussion group. If you say something less than positive about Crime Junkie or its host on the web, you may run into a few of CJ's more rabid fans. On the other hand, ask around true crime circles and you'll find that many creators and listeners can't stand Flowers and her show. Why is that? Professional jealousy? Maybe they just don't vibe with the show and fail to understand the reasons behind its popularity? Perhaps in some cases. But for many, there's a major ethical consideration at play here. You see, Crime Junkie had a nasty habit— For a while there, the show was actively stealing from other creators, podcasters, and journalists.
1: We're getting into the plagiarism issue because it frankly raises questions about why exactly the Indiana State Police chose to partner with this particular podcaster in the first place. The plagiarism scandal had quite broken when Ashley Flowers and Bill Dalton began working together. But anyone with an iota of media savvy could have listened to her show and maybe wondered about things like the quality of the analysis, the lack of citations, and frankly, the bizarre dynamic between Flowers, the star, and Britt Prawat, who rides along as if she's in a motorcycle sidecar, interjecting catchphrases and questions like a superhero's wide-eyed sidekick.
0: Anyways, Let's introduce some of the figures in this story. You may be familiar with some of their work. Instead of recapping all this ourselves, we figured we'd let you hear from the people who experienced issues with Crime Junkie firsthand.
1: Robin Warder started his podcast, The Trail Went Cold, in February of 2016, and has covered a new unsolved case each and every week since then. He describes his show as unsolved mysteries in podcast form. But as a longtime listener, I can tell you that it's a lot more than that. Robin previously wrote a lot of true crime articles that appeared on Cracked and Listverse. That side gig introduced him to some of the plagiarism that can go down online. Here's Robin.
4: I would write articles for Cracked or Lispverse. True crime related, they would be like uh, subcategories like 10 Unsolved Disappearances with Bizarre Clues. And uh, I'd constantly encounter things where a bunch of true crime YouTubers would release a video about the exact same list and I would watch it and it was literally them reading the text of my list first articles word for word without any credit. And the really lazy ones would not even use their own voice, they would get an automated machine to write it. So that just made it doubly lazy. It was quite ridiculous.
1: He recalls when Crime Junkie first dropped.
4: Uh, I attended the first Crime Con in Indianapolis in June of that year and I may or may not have met them. I can't really remember because I, I talked to a couple of other podcasters there who said that they were approached by Ashley and Britt because they hadn't started yet, but but they're from the Indianapolis area so they were coming down to kind of scout the whole thing. So I know some who actually spoke to them and hung out with them at the after hours meetups and it's possible they could have come to my table on podcast row and introduced themselves and I just don't remember it. It. But uh, I never have personally met either of them or had any real contact with them. But I remember hearing about them uh, when they started out. And then just all of a sudden, they seemed to be one of the most popular true crime podcast shows out there. And by the time this whole scandal we're talking about uh, happened, they were like number one on the iTunes charts and had been there for a very long time.
0: Esther Ludlow remembers Crime Junkie from way back, too. She's the creator and host of Once Upon a Crime. Her true crime show is all about storytelling and unpacking the stories behind the stories of real life cases. She first began releasing episodes in June of
5: 2016. We have a community of female true crime podcasters because when we started, there wasn't really any of us. There was a, a handful of us, and so we have stuck together as far as a group, and you know, we uh, promote each other, and support one another, and, and you know, kind of communicate with each other. One of the people that was in our original group, and still is, is Jill, Jillian from Court Junkie. She had a popular podcast, very well done. She's very, you know, I mean, just a really highly rated, all of that. And so when Crime Junkie came out, we were kind of like, people like kind of look and say, like, let's be careful about names. It's a little bit too close to something that's already out there and established. You can't nitpick a lot about that, but it just, because it was still such a small community at the time, we thought usually you try to pay attention to those things. So that was the first thing, and I guess they did, um, you know, reach out, but heard nothing back. It was just, you know, crickets. So, okay, whatever.
1: But other than their meteoric rise and questionable name, nobody else seemed to be at all that hyper aware of issues around Crime Junkie until reporters and podcasters and listeners began to notice something odd. The words Flowers was reading on her show were starting to sound awfully familiar. Here's Robin from The Trail Went Cold.
4: Well, the first one uh, I noticed about a couple months before the plagiarism scandal started because I did an episode about uh, the murder of a uh, woman in uh, Alberta named Amber Tuckero. And a lot of the time when I'm preparing my own podcast episode, I try not to listen to other people's because I don't want them to influence. But once I completed it, I decided I found out that Crime Junkie had done an episode. So I decided to go back and listen to it. And I noticed they were doing kind of a double feature with another case about the mysterious death of a man named Henry McCabe. I think they were combining them together because they were both uh, stories about very weird voicemails that occurred before uh, both the victims died. And after I listened to the Amber Tuckero part, I started listening to the Henry McCabe one, and I thought, this sounds awfully familiar, This, the writing here. And here's
5: Esther from Once Upon a Crime. Because there was a bunch of us, so there was a whole kind of a group, you know, messaging thing when this blew up. This is how a lot of us kind of came in and learned some of the details as people were getting together and sharing just what had happened. I think, first, it was like Stephen from Trace Evidence because he had a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff, and Robin, um, and there was a few other people, and, and then I don't know if somebody said something because the only one that I know of that was taken from, um, you know, my podcast was the Women of Wattes episode, which was weird because that one was more not i want to say personal to me but i felt a little bit more like connected to it because it was you know the women in in mexico and all that was happening and of course being mexican american and stuff and that was something that had been on the radar for a long time and i had really done a a lot of kind of reading into it even prior to thinking about putting it on the podcast because i started listening to it and then as i'm listening to it it's like i swear it's like i got this weird feeling like i felt like my heart sank, you know and i just felt like these i don't know it's just weird i just felt like almost like an outer body experience as i'm listening because i've never had anything like this happen to me before right and i'm listening to it and i'm like i could literally hear my words coming out of their mouths i just was like i mean numb like are you freaking kidding me right now (laughs) like this can't be happening why would somebody do this
1: But the path forward wasn't exactly apparent for podcasters who realized they'd been ripped off. Most didn't have the backing of a major media organization staffed with attorneys. These were just everyday people who dedicated hours of their time to writing and talking about crimes because they cared about the topic.
5: People like me and Robin and Steven and um, you know uh, lots of other people that I know who do scripted podcasts, what we do is we actually really research the story as much as we can. Can't just speak off the cuff, I'm really bad at that. Um, we have a lot of ums and ahs and you knows and that's really annoying when you're trying to audio edit as you know. So I do that, I script it out. So that takes hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of work, you know? And it's not like sit, read an article, talk on a microphone. So sometimes people think that's what it is. So they think, eh, you know, what's the big deal? You know, whatever. It's like, because when I, I went to college and I, went, I, you know, and I got a, an advanced degree and all of that, I remember finishing college and thinking, oh my God, I'm so glad I will not have to write another paper. You know, because <laughs> you spend so many hours and nights and weekends and everything, writing and researching and doing your notes and all of this kind of stuff. It's like, oh, my God, I'm exhausted. I'm never going to do that. Now I literally write a term paper every single week is what I do. So it's like my scripts are between 12 and 20 pages. And that is a pretty good term paper you know, <laughs> as far as the size of it and the research that goes into it, the time that goes into it.
1: And no one wanted to draw the ire of Crime Junkie's audience.
5: Even some other podcasters were like, well, you know, we all kind of cover the same cases. Perhaps
0: some of you listening to this show are also tempted to downplay what happened. Or you may even attribute the whole controversy to an outbreak of sour grapes on the part of crime junkies detractors. But consider this. There's one other prominent chat-based true crime podcast helmed by two women that no one here seems to have a big issue with because that show doesn't have a command V problem like Crime Junkie, as far as we're aware.
4: I said on Lot Let's Talk About uh, True Crime that My Favorite Murder has plugged me like two or three times throughout the course of their history on the show. So they want to use my sources and my research. As long as they give me a shout out, then I'm perfectly fine. It just brings me more listeners because they have such a huge audience.
5: And they're fine. I love them. They're great. Because they friggin cite their people when they use your stuff. And she done it from, Jordan's done it three times, she listens to my podcast. And three times she said, I got the details of this because I don't do research. I got it from Once Upon a Crime. I listen to Esther's show, my f- listeners shot up through the roof. You know, that's great, awesome. You know, and some of your listeners will stay and some won't, you know, and that's fine. But we're, we're helping each other and they're deciding who they learned this from or whatever. And that's cool.
1: But slowly, it began to dawn on everyone that this was not a one-off mistake. Here's Robin.
4: But with the Crime Junkie thing, it was kind of different because I'm an independent podcaster, so I'm the sole person who wrote this. And it technically was not my script. It was just a Reddit post, even though it was based on one of my scripts. And when I first heard it, I was like, well, this is totally not cool, but uh, it's only one time. So maybe I'll just stay silent for a while, keep an eye on it before I get uh, riled up. But then in around August that year, the whole scandal broke loose. And then I found out just tons of other podcasters had gone through the same thing. And we pretty much just all gathered together sharing our similar experiences and i was talking to podcasters who who put up transcripts on their websites of the episodes they've written and it turned out that they had been copied word for word sentence for sentence so that just seemed like a big no-no being a podcaster just plagiarizing another podcaster's script for for word for word so that's kind of how the dam kind of broke and this thing became a huge story Well, that's the thing is I was maybe willing to write it off as some sort of mistake that maybe they just kind of got lazy and read this one Reddit post to release this episode quickly. But when I found out they were doing it on a constant basis, and there was also ones where like, they, uh, they were taking it from scripts where podcasters had done their own independent research and dug up information that was not available publicly. And when Crime Junkie mentioned it in their episodes, you're like, okay, this can't be an accident. They would not have been able to get this information doing their own research. So uh, it just became a huge deal.
1: A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be.
0: For so many of us, lifestyle changes, like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises, are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin
1: This is weight loss at its most sustainable.
0: With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to row.co slash msheet. That's ro.co dot C-O slash msheet.
6: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle.
7: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: And one person in particular helped force the issue into the light. An incredibly passionate newspaper reporter who'd kicked off her journalism career as a senior in high school in Texas. She'd spent 15 years at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, the natural state's newspaper of record. This is a woman who'd had her heart broken covering the haunting, horrific murder of a 13-year-old girl named Casey Woody. And then, years later, she happened to tune into Crime Junkie one day on a drive. Here's Kathy Fry.
6: The way I, I found out about it was, we had gone down to Texas, the kids and I, and I was wanting to listen to something on the way back. And so I asked Amanda to look up like, you know, true crime stuff. She and I both like watch Criminal Minds and all that stuff. So anyway, she found Crime Junkie and I cannot remember how she landed on Casey Woody, the podcast that she had done, but somehow Amanda did. and. As we listened to it, I got madder and madder and madder because the things that she was allegedly reporting were things that only I had ever reported. I had exclusive access to a lot of stuff because I had worked so hard to cultivate both Casey's dad and law enforcement as sources. So, I I finally, I got so angry, I told her, turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) The things that she used in her podcast that particular episode were things that were only in my series and things that only I knew and had recorded and written about. I, I respect the podcasters and I listen to the podcasters who use attribution because if you're going to retell a story especially one like that, that involved all the horrible things that it did. You credit people and you recognize people for their reporting because it takes a toll on you. I mean, sitting there with those crime scene photos, having just had a baby girl, I mean, I had crime scene photos on my living room floor and of her, Casey, and the way that she was found. And I had a father who did not know, did not want to know how she was found. And I had law enforcement officials who were scared to death that he would read what I wrote and then learn about what had happened to her and how she was found. So I had navigated all of that so carefully. And I tried to do it in a compassionate way. And to hear that woman and her freaking (laughs) Gossip Girl style podcast just throw all that out there after I had tried so hard to protect you know the family and her friends from any further harm it just enraged me it was so callous and she did it just to do it you know she plagiarized my story Did I spent you know months and months reporting And gaining the trust of people, including kids. You know, because Casey's friends at the time were still middle schoolers. And she had plagiarized everything.
1: That's when things really blew up. Kathy wrote up a post calling Flowers out for her plagiarism and posted it in one of Crime Junkie's own Facebook groups. That went over about as well as you would expect.
6: I cussed. and used profanity on her Facebook page when I told her that she either needed to give me credit or take it down or do something. And uh, anyway, so I had a few days of of jail time, but you know, it was worth it. For Kathy, this was much more than a spat about
0: plagiarized words. She put everything into covering the murder of Casey Woody.
6: The reason they got really ugly is that I was being called out because, oh, well, Ashley's just trying to put this out there about Internet safety, you know, and things that parents need to know. But the thing is, is the Casey Woody story was written way back when, in 2003. And that's back when it was Yahoo and AOL and the same, you know, parameters didn't necessarily apply so to attack me for like not appreciating the fact that they were putting this story out there to warn parents of the danger you know instead I was attacked (laughs) for shaming her publicly for stealing and reading aloud my own story, my own series it was a series and the thing that really got me is that it took me months to get Rick Woody, Casey's father, and the four law enforcement entities and everybody on board. I had to explain how I would write the story and then Rick Woody did not want to know certain things about his daughter's death. And to the point where the night before the last story ran, I called him and I told him, if you don't want to know, about what happened to her you know in those final hours then please do not read tomorrow's story and she Ashley, took all of that and just threw it out there for public consumption the thing that really got me is that when i was reporting this i was very pregnant with my daughter and i left rick woody's house one night after another interview because i basically immersed myself in his life you know, and everybody else's. And uh, Amanda, by this time, my daughter, had just been born. And he said, go home and hold your daughter. And we're talking about a child who was colicky, (laughs) who was born three weeks early, and all of that. And what he said to me just resonated so much because what he was saying was, It's so fleeting, you know, hold on to what you have, Um, you know, even though you may feel completely, you know, useless and sleep deprived, it's still a time that you can bond with your child, your daughter. As Kevin and I
0: talked to Kathy, I actually came to a realization myself. Back when I was in middle school, I'd gone to an assembly where we'd watched a chilling documentary on Casey's murder. I have recollections of other kids in my grade crying after the film ended. I remember feeling sick to my stomach learning about what had happened to Casey, to this girl who would remain 13 forever, despite being born several years before me. Kathy said a number of documentaries had been made about the case, and she even appeared in one at the request of the Woody family speaking as a journalist i can say that reporting on serious heavy issues can and does weigh on many people within the press i can't imagine the stress of covering a case like this awful murder so intensively and i can't fathom the shock of watching a high-profile platform handle it so
6: carelessly i think what gets people when it comes to plagiarism is that after you've spent so much time You know, cultivating a relationship with people, earning their trust, and trying to do right by them to not make it the salacious, just, you know, oh, bad daddy story because he didn't know what his daughter was doing. You know, my goal in writing that series was to let parents know that this is how this age group of girls is. You know, which is why I interviewed at length, the school counselor, and quoted her extensively. And this is what is available to this population on the internet at that time. My goal was to educate and to hopefully prevent uh, something like this from happening again, especially given that the man who killed her had been grooming other girls and calling them and so forth. And to have her just do this whole chatty, oh, blah, 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 what do you think, Brit? Da, 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 you know, thing. <laughs> like it was just some coffee group talking it. Just, it, it cut me because I invested so much of myself and my time and my emotions and all of that into creating that series with the hope that it would be of benefit to people and as she had just attributed it you know and and said that it came from a local homegrown reporter who knew these people you know that's all she had to do but she won't do it because her ego gets in the way I guess I don't know to be called out and criticized and lashed out at because I called out Ashley Flowers you should just be glad she's sharing this you know you should just be grateful that she's putting the word out and I was like you know we did that we put the word out in 2003 and I went and gave several speeches talks whatever at different schools and county organizations and so forth to do exactly that but for her and her cult-like little groupies to say that I was mad for my own personal reasons, it made no sense to me because, again, everything's different now. It You know, we're not talking about Yahoo. We're not talking about MySpace. We're not talking about AOL. Now it is a whole entirely different online world where kids are concerned. So to claim that She was doing the public some sort of benefit or good by plagiarizing me and just telling this story, you know, on her podcast. It was bullshit.
1: Some of these mental gymnastics deployed in defense of crime junkie are pretty astonishing. It seems like avoiding victim blaming is a tried and true rule in the true crime community, as it should be. But some were willing to throw out that maxim and instead turned to tactics like gaslighting and shooting the messenger when it came out that their favorite media figure had engaged in dishonest and hurtful behavior. Here's Esther from Once Upon a Crime.
5: What I've come to understand about their most, most hardcore fans is that those people are really not podcast fans. They're crime junkie fans. So I'm not really worried about them because they're not listening to a bunch of other podcasts. Podcast fans listen to a lot of other podcasts. That's their thing. They love podcasts. These people are Ashley Flowers fans. Basically, she does no wrong. And here's Robin from The Trail Went Cold.
4: Some of the comments that I would see, like, on their social media from the diehard fans who just, you can tell they had no real understanding about what plagiarism was. They were just like, what is the big deal here? I mean, don't you all just use the same sources, the same facts all the time? Or they would just flat out say, I mean, I don't care if they're, they plagiarized, I'm still a huge fan, I love their show. And it's like when you're dealing with people like that and who are like such diehard fans, no matter what, it can be kind of daunting and discouraging the, the idea that they could do no wrong in their eyes.
0: Others saw Kathy's post and stopped listening to what they'd initially considered to just be a fun conversational show a way to pass the time and learn more about different cases. And many of the victims of Crime Junkies' plagiarism began to go public with their own stories. Here's Robin
4: from The Trail Went Cold. A lot of podcasters were speaking about it, and we said, yeah, we've gone through the, the same thing ourselves, and now is the time to really, now that she's gone public, for some of the rest of us to go public as well.
1: Esther, from Once Upon a Crime, remembers seeing Kathy's post too. And, as she read it, she became angry.
5: How dare you? Like, and I'm reading the things that that journalist that she wrote, because this was, you know, a major series that she did in this newspaper. And the fact that they just took it and didn't credit it at all, and just used it almost verbatim. um, And she was like, and she felt the same way, like, shit, you know, I worked my ass off on that. And yet they just decide they can just take it and use it for whatever damn purpose they want. Like nobody's going to notice that. And so that to me was like the arrogance factor of it that I thought was above and beyond. Soon,
0: journalists were digging around the story. Todd Spangler of Variety, Stephanie McNeil of BuzzFeed, and Derek Bryson Taylor and Christine Hauser of The New York Times each published articles detailing the scandal. Some of them even quoted Esther and Robin.
4: But it it was just such an overwhelming week for me, I remember, because uh, I can't even remember the series of events of how I got in touch, but I think I was emailed by BuzzFeed News who said, I got your name from this plagiarism scandal. Would you be willing to uh, share some stuff with me? And then I soon heard from Variety and then the New York Times. And I think one of the reasons I was was published, because by that point uh, they hadn't removed the episode yet, so there was evidence they could use. I could just say, here's the Reddit post, here's the episode, and you play them side by side and the evidence is there. And that's why mine got published. But at the same time, it's kind of discouraging that this could go so huge and be in like the new york times and there was never really an apology and even though there were some people who were angry and said they would never listen to crime junkie again uh it feels like they're still kind of in the same place two years later that they haven't really uh, suffered any real consequences for it and that there's still a lot of people who've forgotten about it or they don't care about it and they're still going to go on being fans and it's not no one's really going to learn a lesson that plagiarism is wrong And one thing that always struck everyone as bizarre at the time is once uh, Kathy Fry came out, they started removing episodes, the ones they were accused of plagiarizing, but they also removed some other episodes that no one had actually accused them of doing anything wrong. They were just removed from their feed, and it's kind of like, ooh, that's kind of an admission of guilt that you're afraid of being caught even though no one has actually said anything about these episodes.
1: One of these episodes was the one where they copied Esther's work.
4: Um,
5: I've never, you know, I've never contacted them or anything like that because they know. And the reason why I know they know, to be honest, it took me about a week because I, I almost couldn't believe it. And I had to go and I thought, I even thought this to this point, I thought, and meanwhile, I know I write everything myself. I thought, was there some way that, that I inadvertently like maybe, you know, took a portion of you know, because I read a book about it. I read um, articles, I had stuff translated that was in Mexican newspapers that I read because I don't read Spanish. I, I even found scholarly articles about the whole Women of Who thing and all that was going on. And I read all that stuff and I put that together in my own script. And I thought, is there some way, maybe that book or something that I took, you know, and then she did the same or whatever. So I even waited to go to the library to get that book because it's not a book that's widely available. And, and said, well, let me look at this book, you know, and let me look at my script and make sure, you know, and all of this. So I even did all of that. I thought, nope, nope, you know. And so that's, so when that was happening, before I even said anything to anybody, they took that episode down. They took the Women of Wattis episode down. That tells me they knew before anybody even mentioned it, that that was copied. And so, and yet... What is it, a few days later, a week later, they put them back up with nothing, you know? And so I'm like, wow, that is ballsy. Like you must think that, you know, because of your popularity or maybe you have a, money. I don't know what it is that you can basically just do whatever you want and take whatever you want. And, you know, lie, cheat and steal and just it's all good because you're profiting. Suddenly Flowers, who
0: had presented herself in the media as one of the foremost true crime podcasters out there, was a very hard person to find.
4: Yeah, I think they were scheduled to appear at, uh, I think it was a, a podcasting event called Podcast Movement, where Ashley was scheduled to be on a panel discussion. And I think it was the very same day the plagiarism story broke. And according to another podcaster I know who was there, she just did not appear on the panel at all, and they didn't offer any explanation for her absence. But I think they were worried that if she appeared on stage, that's all anyone would want to talk about. So I think she was just kind of laying low and uh, trying to hope that this scandal would just go away
5: that whole time, at the, at the same time all that was blowing up that summer, they were just about to, or they just started a, spe- like a speaking tour or something they were doing selling tickets to theaters and stuff like that. And that went underground. They were still out there, but they had none of it on their social media. They took everything down off of their Instagram, their Twitter, everything. Because they knew that people would show up outside and, you know, with signs that say, you know, crime junkie plagiarizes and they would try to avoid it. And the other thing they did was on their social media is they turned off all commenting at that time too. Wow. That, I mean, to have to do that to me, it kind of just defeats the purpose, like of having an audience in the first place. Like you can't, you can't like, you know, you can't interact with people, I guess, unless they really were trying to keep it to just who they know were their loyal fans, to keep that closed ranks, which I get because their name was Mudd.
1: Despite their frenzied attempts to remove the incriminating episodes and cancel public appearances, the AudioChuck team seemed far less robust in terms of their efforts around issuing a statement or even privately apologizing to the people they'd stolen from. Anya would read the statement that they ended up putting out there as published in Variety.
0: We recently made the decision to pull down several episodes from our main feed when their source material could no longer be found or properly cited. Since then, we've worked to put additional controls in place to address any gaps moving forward. Our work would not be possible absent the incredible efforts of countless individuals who investigate and report these stories originally, and they deserve to be credited as such. We are committed to working within the burgeoning podcast industry to develop and evolve its standards on these kinds of issues.
1: The people whose work Crime Junkie had cribbed from were less than impressed. Here's Robin.
4: It sounded like it was written by a lawyer, pretty much. It was kind of a statement where we're going to address this, but we're not going to say anything incriminating. And I, I can't remember the exact... Uh, wording from it, but you can probably uh, find it online, where it was just kind of like, we try to keep ourselves to the highest standards with our research, blah, blah, blah. We've gone to the trouble of, uh, of adding sources to our show notes and stuff, but they didn't really admit to doing anything wrong. And they've never really been in touch with me or any of the other podcasters they've affected.
1: Speaking as an attorney, I can say that it seems like a statement written to minimize the situation and avoid admitting any liability. That may make sense in terms of protecting your business from a lawsuit, but it's totally inadequate in terms of being a decent human being. Apologies, real apologies, matter. In fact, I don't get the sense that this would even still be a thing anyone was talking about in 2021 had Flowers just reached out and said, I'm sorry.
4: there was another podcast recently a big one where they were accused of plagiarizing an entire reddit post and reading it word for word and they finally issued a public apology just saying the host said well we didn't know about this it was one of our writers who probably did it without our knowledge and they issued an apology and they pulled the episode and now no one's talking about it anymore it's long forgotten because they they did the right thing but this is here we are two years later and crumb junkie has never really apologized and that's why people are still talking about it after all these years
5: Here's Esther. If they had just addressed it and said, we screwed up, you know, I don't even know. I don't know. Was that them? that Did they farm it out to somebody who plagiarized it and then they just recorded it? I have no idea because they never addressed it, you know, but it makes me think that it wasn't because why wouldn't you just say that?
1: And here's Kathy.
6: I never, never got anything but harassment from her little troll people, so... I mean, I was still getting notifications on Facebook on one of my posts when I called her out a year later. I mean, people were just now seeing it and then flying into a rage that I had dared to insult the Queen, you know. And I just, I have absolutely no respect for any podcaster who refuses to acknowledge you know, where the information comes from or who provided it, I tend to pick the podcasts that are journalists, you know, reporting because they will either attribute things or quote people directly or do their own work, their own legwork and so forth. But I have no respect for anybody like Ashley Flowers, who just simply digs up stuff online, rereads it with her little sidekick friend saying, uh huh, oh, oh, and then what happened, you know, that's just, that's bullshit. It's not real reporting. It's not real anything. It's just retelling somebody else's story without any sort of factual checking or attribution. It's not real.
0: Kathy pushed her old employer, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, to issue Crime Junkie a cease and desist letter. When we reached out to the paper, they told us that Crime Junkie had since credited Kathy in its episode source material, which also links back to her series of articles. But beyond that, nothing's happened.
6: She never, to my knowledge, responded, but again, that's just me. You know, and of course I pissed her off because I called her out on her own Facebook page.
0: It's interesting to speak with Kathy, given she's a newspaper journalist whose career followed a traditional path before the advent of the web.
6: I felt like I was taught a very principled sort of way of doing journalism. And podcasting caught me off guard. With a newspaper or a printed story, you it, 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 it's not going to go away. Somebody has a copy somewhere, you know, even if it's not online, it's still there. But with podcasts, there's a lot of wiggle room for unscrupulous people because they can just go online and allegedly report, that's in quote things without having to substantiate those facts for themselves and they don't have to confirm things and they don't have to adhere to what print journalists adhered to. And I mean, that that was my world with print journalism, newspapers. We knew that whatever we wrote was going to be printed and distributed and held onto. You know, you write an obit and you know that whatever you write and whatever screw ups are in that obit, that's what the family is going to have. You had to be so careful and you had to be so right and so thorough and so fair and so accurate. And podcasts, I mean, podcasters play by a whole different set of rules.
1: But all of that said she found a surprising source of support in the wake of the Crime Junkie plagiarism scandal.
6: I remember there were several stories in which I was quoted and podcasters were quoted, and I got a lot of support from them because they felt that this was becoming a problem with podcasts in general, but especially with Crime Junkie. So it was not all just backlash against me. Journalists supported me, reporters supported me, people who understand that when you spend that much time reporting on something, I mean, it takes a little piece of your soul every time. That's the thing about this whole debacle.
0: Whether you're from a traditional media background, or you're new to the podcasting game, I'd like to think that most people understand that stealing is wrong.
1: If you're still on the fence, I'd encourage you to consider how you would feel if someone came into your workplace and behaved this way, claiming credit for things you had done. Here's Esther.
5: Let's say that you worked you know, at some company and you had a project that you were working on. and you know, it was your project, you had to do it. You're doing all this work, you're staying late, you're coming in early, you're doing stuff on the weekends, you're doing all this stuff, putting together this whole report project, whatever it is. And then you go into to your boss or whoever, and you're presenting this project, and somebody swoops in and presents it as their own. You would literally freak out. Like, what the F is going on here because that's my work how the hell are you can just swoop in and take it and then like now you get the credit for it and you look like oh you're this great you know whatever and you did this great report when i did it and yet you can say nothing about it almost nobody's paying attention to it they're saying oh you know you know don't be jealous they, they did it great you know that kind of thing that's what we got that's what we got from the people who were listeners of that show where like, you're just being jealous because she's so much pop- more popular than you are. I don't give a shit about being popular. It's like, no, it's n- not about that at all. It's like, just think about how you would feel if, if that happened to you. What would you do? What would you say? Who would you go to? What higher ups would you try to go to to say, this is bullshit. Like, that's my work. So
0: I find it fascinating, perhaps even telling, that Crime Junkie promised to work to develop and evolve ethical standards within podcasting in its letter that half-apologized for its plagiarism. To me, that seems like an arsonist volunteering to rewrite a town's fire code. Or an employer with a history of OSHA violations volunteering to pen legislation around worker safety. An adulterer hitting the lecture circuit with a spiel about keeping your spouse happy or an active alcoholic publishing a self-help book between gulps of wine. You get what I'm saying. Put your house in order before you start preaching to others.
1: Robin told us that in some ways, the crime junkie plagiarism scandal has likely put a lot of people on notice about citing and giving credit
4: i think people have gotten more cautious overall and i include myself because during the early years of podcasting i never saw people cite sources in their show notes uh, but now i do that and i even went back and put them in a lot of my older episodes because back in 2016 it was still kind of the wild west where uh, people were just all new to this thing so we didn't really know about it but i find that all podcasts in general are a lot more careful and that uh, if they're going to use other people's work they will put it in the show notes or they will uh, or they will mention it on the show and uh, try to give credit to other podcasts if they've done their own research. Uh, I know they've noticed that Crime Junkie is also a lot more cautious as well. Like if you listen to their episodes from the last few years, they'll actually say a lot of their sources out loud. I, I think they might even be paranoid though, that if we don't cite every single source, then we might get into trouble again.
1: But the lack of a real apology or any sort of accountability hasn't done wonders for how Crime Junkie is perceived by other podcasters. Do you have a sense of what Ashley's reputation is in the uh, true crime podcasting community?
4: Well, that's the thing. I mean, I know some people who have had good relationships with her who have worked with her in the past, and she has worked with a lot of uh, victims' families. And uh, who had done good things for them, but uh, I think that there's some other people who don't think too highly of her. I mean, I, I, I don't know any, I don't know that many podcasters who know her personally or are friends with her because that's what a, that was kind of a collective experience I had when the plagiarism scandal broke and we were all talking about uh, our personal experiences. And most of us could say, well, I've spoken to her once or twice, or I've had a few emails with her, but we don't really know her all that well. We're not really close enough. And I did hear though that uh, when they were starting out, they reached out to a lot of smaller podcasts about doing stuff like promo swaps, uh, just to uh, cross promotion in order to get started. But it seemed like after Crime Junkie became huge, uh, they kind of ghosted a lot of them.
5: She really is an outsider in this in this uh, genre. Now, is she happy there? Sure, she's making a lot of money, but she can't really show her face in public when people who are podcast listeners are true crime Um, you know, people or podcasters are concerned because they know her reputation and it's not good. As far as the, the community of podcasters, she is not part of that at all. And I don't believe that she's ever tried to be. And I know I've been like, there was a couple of things that we kind of cross paths before luckily for her before this happened that that it was like she was there and I thought yeah she's just not I don't know she's different she's not like she's not part of the community she really wants to be a part and she wants to be it's it's about wanting to be like a media empire is what it is it's not about being a podcaster it's not you know which is like I said is fine you know, do, do your thing, it's fine, just don't use other people's crap, use your own, you have money now, you can pay people, as a matter of fact, I know she's approached people that I know to write for her, and wanted to, like, pay nothing, and not even give them any credit, you know, it's ghost writing, for. you know, you've probably heard some of those stories, um, and it's like, really, come on, you're gonna give... It's basically giving you the change in your pocket for me writing something that you know you're going to make thousands and thousands of dollars on advertisements for. Dude, we're podcasters. We know what we can make off of these things. We know what are, what's being paid. So I'm sure she found some people who don't know that are outside of it that are just, you know, maybe writing for blogs or something and don't know, like, how much can be made on, on each episode um, with sponsors and all of that.
1: The fact that Audio Chuck and Flowers likely earned many thousands of dollars from plagiarizing the work of others doesn't help either. And, in fact, she continues to make money from her plagiarism. We checked, and the episodes that contain content stolen from others still contain advertisements.
0: I can actually imagine a scenario where things played out differently. Because if I'm being honest, As much as I feel that plagiarism is a cardinal sin, a serious affront, I can also see how people can make mistakes. How you respond to those mistakes is often what really reveals character. So let's say that Kathy Fry goes public and podcasters like Robin Warder and Esther Ludlow follow suit. Flowers and her team realize they've messed up. They release a statement explaining what exactly happened and expressing remorse to those they stole from and the audience they deceived. They privately reach out to the affected podcasters and journalists to apologize for what they've done. They publicly identify all the plagiarized episodes and offer to donate funds earned through those programs or some agreed upon lump sum to a charity of their victim's choice. But that would require some backbone and some real humility. And when you're raking in enough money to buy a $1.3 million house, and when you have Hollywood dreams, maybe you don't want to be humble. Maybe you just want your lawyer or your public relations rep to jot out a quick statement. And maybe you want everyone who's mad at you to just go away. Maybe those podcasters and listeners asking hard questions, demanding that you make the situation right, It just sounds like a mosquito's whine to you. Annoying, but easy enough to ignore. Maybe you just don't care anymore. Or maybe you never did.
4: Here's Robin. Well, I mean, I'd I'd feel that if they had issued an apology and uh, made things right and they were still big today i'd be fine with that but it just kind of feels like what kind of an example does it set where they can get caught plagiarizing and then continue on as if nothing has happened and i think that might be why we have cases sometimes where people start a new podcast or a youtube channel and they plagiarize and they get caught but then you're wondering well they saw this big show do it and face no consequences so maybe they thought it was okay to do it as well and uh it just kind of Just from reading some of the comments from their listeners, that's kind of the discouraging thing, is the idea that there just seem to be a lot of people out there who don't understand how plagiarism works. And you wonder, do they not teach this in school or something? Because that's one of the very first lessons you're taught when when you're writing essays or assignments is don't copy your sources word for word. But it just seems like there are a lot of people out there who thinks that's not a big deal.
1: And here's Esther.
5: You know, we didn't go out there screaming and calling her names or, you know, We're in this industry and we try to be professional. I never approached her that way. She knew, I know she knew, like that we were putting this out there and saying what happened and stuff. I think that there's a lot of, you know, head burying in the sand kind of thing because they didn't really need to pay attention to it. They were still doing what they were doing and sponsors didn't leave them and listeners didn't leave them. some listeners did, because I do, I still get uh, messages from people saying, yeah, I, I didn't know about that, and I just, you know, quit listening, and I told all my friends that I, I canceled my Patreon membership, and it's like, okay, you know, that's, you do what you think is right, you know, I'm not going to stand out there screaming about it. It is what it is, but yeah, it's 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 very weird, but I do think when the podcasting industry has really grown, and there is going to be more, more of that, there's going to be more of People that are looking at it in a different way, just like you know, music and television and everything else. It's like there's stuff out there that's really good, maybe it doesn't get a lot of, as of attention as the stuff that has the big marketing budget or the big, you know, attention for whatever reason. And um, you know, but it's really not that good.
0: Lastly, here's Kathy.
6: A lot of the stories I did were just about people who had suffered from some horrible tragedy. And they're not public figures. They're not public officials. And I treated them very differently than I would, say, a politician, you know, or or some sort of official. Because, to me, it was about compassion. And, you know, I would even schedule interviews so that I would tell the person, okay, this is the day that we're gonna go over everything that we've talked about because I wanna make sure it's correct before I put it, you know, or before I finish writing this. And I don't want you to have to go to work after this. And I I don't want you to have to be expected somewhere after this because it will be grueling. And I tried so hard to be kind and empathetic and passionate anytime I've reported on any sort of human tragedy, whether it was a man-made, natural disaster, or whatever. And I think that is what I find reprehensible about a lot of podcasters, is that they're not doing these podcasts to try to solve anything or to help the family. It's just so gratuitous, you know. Um, there are podcasts that I listen to, like Trace Evidence, where the families are acknowledged and the harm that's been done to them is acknowledged. And, you know, and there are explanations for their behavior or their reactions and, and all of that, that kind of context that you need when you're talking about people who have suffered something so horrible and are then abruptly thrust you know, into the public eye. But Ashley Flowers does not do that. It's just this kind of like, oh, let's have some coffee and talk about this gruesome murder and laugh and joke about it. And, you know, there's no consideration for the people who were so impacted by whatever happened. And so to me, a solid podcast when it comes to true crime involves attribution, or their own reporting and a desire to actually help solve something or to put it out there so that maybe these families and victims could come to some sort of, you know, I don't know. I don't believe in closure. There's no such thing. But I think a podcast, when it comes to true crime, should be focused on trying to further a case or to help a family and it should not be this gratuitous exercise is just telling or retelling a story um for you to make a profit and and that's what we see you know i mean it's to make a profit and that's why i absolutely <laughs> abhor and will always loathe and detest crime junkie because that's even the name Crime Junkie is is just an affront to anyone who has suffered from losing someone unexpectedly in a very tragic way or horrific way. It's it's just insulting and, and mean. I mean I suffer from PTSD, you know, major PTSD and I recognize that I react to things a certain way and this and that. But at the same time, that also allows me to understand people who are also just trying to cope and get by. And if I had thought that Ashley Flowers' podcast episode on Casey would have been helpful, I mean, it was solved. It had been solved it was solved from the very beginning, just a few days, you know, I mean, within a matter of hours, you know, it was just, to me, it, it struck me as gratuitous and, and just a play to get more listeners. It, it, it just that's, that's not why I went into journalism. I went into journalism to be a voice for people who would otherwise probably be ignored. And I went into journalism to advocate for people who might not be And to hear that woman just reciting my story online, it it just, it was not only the fact that she didn't attribute it to me, it was the fact that she was so cavalier about it. And so just, you know, here's some of those crime stories for you little donkeys out there. And she didn't care. When I wrote those stories, I cared missing and murdered people because I gave a shit and she doesn't for her it's just money she's earning money she's selling her merchandise she's going to her little you know whatever live events and so forth and it's just funny and to me it was a crusade it was like an effort to help people it was an effort to try to find the missing or an effort to figure out who had murdered someone and she just twisted that all up and made it all about her and her little sidekick friend,
7: whatever. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe.
0: Now, at last, we're gonna get into the Burger Chef case. As we said at the top of the program, Bill Dalton of the Indiana State Police, who leads the investigation on this case, decided to allow Crime Junkie host Ashley Flowers to have complete and total access to the Burger Chef case file. The end results were disastrous. As it happens, Kevin was in a position to see a little bit of this story as it unfolded.
1: I honestly don't remember when I first heard of Crime Junkie or Ashley Flowers. A friend of mine told me he liked her podcast at some point in the summer of 2018, but somehow I never got around to actually listening to it. But I grew more interested in the show after a meeting I was at with Bill Dalton. At that time, Dalton rather casually revealed that he was working with Ashley Flowers on a special podcast about the Bergeshev case. But, he added confidently, he would have full editorial control over the program.
0: Now, we're going to have an awful lot to say later about the ethics of a journalist or podcaster turning full editorial control over their program to the agency they cover without informing their audience. But first, we want to be clear that we wanted to be fair. It is possible that Dalton misspoke and did not mean what he said. It is possible he meant what he said, but intentionally mischaracterized the arrangement he had with flowers. That's what we thought earlier. But during the course of researching this episode, we got explicit confirmation that ISP controlled Red Ball. More on that later. We reached out to both of them asking for clarification on this point. Dalton wrote back with a refusal to comment, and Flowers failed to respond altogether.
1: In any case, Dalton's news got me curious enough to check out the then-most recent episode of Flowers' program, Crime Junkie. As it turned out, the one I heard covered the case of David Cam.
0: In case you aren't familiar with it, here's a quick overview. Cam is a former member of the Indiana State Police. His wife and two children were murdered in 2000. Cam was tried and convicted of those murders. The verdict was overturned, and he was tried and convicted once more. The verdict was overturned a second time. Cam was tried a third time, and this time he was exonerated. As Kevin will mention in a moment, there is also a bit of a Burger Chef connection to this case.
1: I would actually see Flowers and Dalton together just a few days after I listened to that episode. Some trees at Leonard Park in Speedway, Indiana were being dedicated to Jane Freet, Ruth Shelton, Danny Davis, and Mark Flemons, the four victims of the Burgoshef murders. A small ceremony was held at the park at that time, and it attracted a large percentage of the community that has grown up around this tragic case. Family and friends of the victims were there, and there were even some people present who were witnesses to different aspects of the crime. Flowers and Dalton were there too. They stood in the very back of the crowd, Flowers never seeming to move very far from Dalton's side. I remember that this surprised me. She was doing a podcast about the case, and here in front of her was a golden opportunity to meet and talk with the people who had been most affected by it all. Why wasn't she taking advantage of it? Why wasn't she trying to get their perspectives and hear their stories? At some point, I decided to try to strike up a conversation with Flowers myself. I told her I'd heard her CAM episode and asked her if she had done it because of his connection to Burger Chef, the case she was now covering for her new program. She looked confused, and so I explained that one of the witnesses against CAM was a jailhouse informant named Donald Forrester. She still seemed confused and she left me with the impression that she did not know who Forrester even was. That seemed surprising, since Forrester at one time claimed to be the Burger Chef killer himself, and his false confession is prominently featured in almost every single article ever written about this case. Could it be possible that Flowers could know so little about the case she was ostensibly devoting a new podcast series to? In fairness, though, it is possible she simply felt awkward and uncomfortable around me. A few days earlier, i had had what I thought was a minor tiff with Bill Dalton. A source wanted me to ask Dalton a question and to keep their name confidential until I got the answer. I asked the question of Dalton. It was not at all germane to the case and was relatively trivial. Dalton wanted me to tell him who the source was before he answered the question. I let him know that that violated my agreement with the source. At that point, Dalton sent me back a message in which he finally answered the question, accused me of withholding information about the case, and even tried to interfere with my relationship with one of my clients. I found that to be incredibly unprofessional behavior on his part. Nevertheless, since he answered the question, I did indeed give him my source's name. I thought this was a relatively minor event in the great scheme of things and would blow over. But it permanently changed my relationship with Bill Dalton. He never treated me the same again. Even though I continued to bring him information and witnesses whenever I thought it would possibly be helpful. In retrospect, I feel this incident revealed something about Bill Dalton's character. He was testing me trying to see if I would be completely unquestioningly loyal to him, even if it meant betraying others. In my view, only a deeply insecure man would require such a test, would want to surround himself with admiring sycophants who catered to his every whim. In any case, I certainly failed Dalton's loyalty test. Most people would. But, as time would tell, Ashley Flowers passed his tests with flying colors.
0: And she started getting rewarded for it fairly quickly. A few days after the tree dedication ceremony, the Indiana State Police held a press conference to mark the 40th anniversary of the Burger Chef murders.
1: I was there, and so was Flowers. I spotted her sitting alone in the audience. I never saw her speak to anyone.
0: At one point in the press conference, Dalton was asked a rather predictable question. How many man hours have been spent on the Burger Chef case in recent months? Let's listen to his answer.
8: Um, well, I mean, I have the hours at work. I, I manage a, um, a group of detectives, and I, we manage because, um, because the cases never stopped coming in. Um, so I work on it um, as much as I can um, throughout the week and um and and it's i mean it, admittedly so it's it's one of those things um in this case is, is the type of case and um that that i i'm a i'm a i guess a, a crime nerd uh that way or maybe a crime junkie that um um i i read this stuff on my own time uh i'm i'm i'm, I'm It's so much information, uh, so I I don't have any idea to be able to track it in hours. It's just, it's always, it's always on my mind.
0: Did you catch that? Let's play part of it again.
8: I'm a, a, I guess a a crime nerd uh, that way, or maybe a crime junkie.
0: Crime Junkie, of course, is the name of the weekly series hosted by Ashley Flowers. In the middle of the 40th anniversary press conference on the murders, a high profile event designed to focus on the victims and those left behind, Dalton made a point to squeeze in what was basically a gratuitous plug, mentioning a for-profit program hosted by his new podcast partner.
1: And this was definitely noticed at the time. I remember seeing people on one of the Crime Junkie Facebook groups reacting with delight to how Dalton had shifted attention at the press conference to Flowers and her program. I cannot overstate how inappropriate and unprofessional it was of Dalton to do this. That time and place belonged to the victims. Dalton had no moral right to take it away from them for even a moment so he could turn the spotlight on Flowers. Sitting in the room that day, I remember being appalled. And I wondered, what exactly was the relationship between Dalton and Flowers? How had this happened?
0: A lot of people have been curious about the Bill Dalton-Ashley Flowers relationship and how exactly they decided to work together on Red Ball in such an unprecedented fashion. We'd heard some speculation, all unverified. But we wanted to learn the actual facts and share them with you. As we said, we reached out to both of them and asked for comment. But that wasn't all we did. Dalton made his decisions in the case on behalf of the Indiana State Police. That agency is a public organization that works and serves the people of Indiana. They have an obligation to share with the people information about how their employees conduct themselves. So all the way back in June, about six months ago, I filed a request under the Indiana Access to Public Records Act with them for emails and other documents relating to Red Ball from the period in which the program was conceived and produced. I soon heard back from them that they would not allow me to make an individual request for such a broad time period. That seemed a bit odd, but then I changed my single request to several requests, each covering a shorter time period. They told me that wasn't allowed either, that I was only allowed to make a single request at a
1: time. So, Anya made one request, and I made another.
0: But they said that wasn't allowed either! That even though Kevin and I are both individual, tax-paying residents of the state of Indiana, We were working together on this and therefore were only allowed one request between us. That seemed absurd to us, like saying that since Kevin and I are married, we are only allowed one vote in an election. Just because you are part of a partnership or a couple, you do not surrender your rights as an individual. So we filed a complaint against the Indiana State Police with Indiana's public access counselor, Luke Britt.
1: That was, admittedly, Bit of a fool's errand. The public access counselor in Indiana has a tendency to side with the ISP. In fact, in their opinion in the case of Christopher L. Davis versus the state police, they wrote, This office enjoys a healthy relationship with ISP. I think it is fair to say that the ISP enjoys that relationship too, especially since it gives the agency insulation against public scrutiny and criticism.
0: Needless to say, we lost. Public access counselor, Luke Britt, basically decided that if people work for the same organization, then they give up their rights as individual to ask for information from the government.
1: The ISP turned over a few non-helpful emails from the earliest brief timetable Anya requested. At that point, we were allowed to make a second request and we did so. They were legally obligated to answer us within seven days. It took them 31 days to respond, and at that time they told us it would take another 60 days before they could send us any of our requested documents. We are still waiting.
0: We did reach out to Public Access Counselor Luke Britt for comment for this episode, and he got back to us. Keep in mind that we'll be discussing a complaint filed in 2019 by Chris Davis, who ran the 3C Circle City Crime podcast.
1: For context, we said in our reach-out that we were planning to criticize his decision, which we felt amounted to signing off on giving the ISP the right to allow a private individual exclusive access to and the ability to monetize police investigative files because the officer who allowed such access did not have authorization from above and we added that the end result is that only one person got to see that file that person got to monetize it and no one else not even family members of the victims got to see the file
0: Britt wrote back i'll allow the various opinions to speak for themselves i think the first issue you cite might be mischaracterized a bit i believe we did not endorse isp's decision making in that instance in fact 19 INF 06 states, the purpose of the investigatory records exception is to protect the integrity of a law enforcement agency's investigation into a crime, not to selectively boost the true crime infotainment research of one party over another. I stand by that statement, and it is incorporated by reference in subsequent opinions. I would encourage you to reference the opinions in their entirety and not select passages that might be considered out of context. I appreciate the opportunity to weigh in.
1: Britt was quoting from an informal opinion which carries much less weight than his formal opinions which themselves are not binding. I wrote back, I feel strongly that what you wrote and the actual opinion goes against the letter and spirit of The purpose of the investigatory records exception is to protect the integrity of a law enforcement agency's investigation into a crime, not to selectively boost the true crime infotainment research of one party over another. I feel that principles and the right words mean little if they are not put into actual practice. And in my view, by allowing the situation to stand, you actively allow the true crime infotainment research of Ashley Flowers to get the exclusive right to access and monetize investigatory files. Your ruling literally made this outcome happen."
0: Britt responded, "...the legal issue before this office was one of a waiver of the statutory exception and not any other incidental effect of disclosure. My determination would have been the same if Chris Davis had access and Flowers did not, all else being equal." Notably." I have not received any complaints regarding imbalanced treatment concerning similarly situated requesters in the two plus years since Mr. Davis's situation. The public access counselor also sent us the complaint he received regarding the Davis case. It gave us some insight into how lopsided the system can be. The form that Davis had to fill out offered like half a page for him to handwrite his assessment of what happened. The ISP, on the other hand, were able to fill out five and a half neatly typed up pages going into their side of the story. Davis did not get the opportunity to respond to that. If he had received such a chance, it seems likely that he would have been able to challenge some of the dubious statements and distortions offered by the ISP's attorney. It seems like this system is designed to favor the government agency rather than the private citizen who is making a complaint.
1: On some level, we understand why the ISP is reluctant to share internal documents about Ashley Flowers, Bill Dalton, and Red Ball. No one likes to share embarrassing information about themselves. And they are absolutely correct to be embarrassed about Bill Dalton, Ashley Flowers, and Red Ball. It was a totally unnecessary self-inflicted black eye to the ISP. Bill Dalton screwed up badly.
0: But the ISP is a public agency. The people of the state of Indiana have a right to hold them accountable. The taxpayers of the state of Indiana paid Dalton's salary when he and Flowers cooked up Red Ball and when he referenced crime junkie at the press conference. We all have the right to learn what happened so we can learn the right lessons. So regardless of whether or not it is embarrassing to the ISP or to Dalton personally, The facts of this situation need to be brought forward.
1: Since Flowers, Dalton, and the ISP are all being silent, all we have to go on are some of Flowers' comments to other press outlets. Here, for instance, is a comment she made to Tracy Hazard of Authority Magazine.
0: When I started the business, my ultimate goal was to create something like Red Ball, but knew that working with police would take a long time. My original plan was to create Crime Junkie in order to build an audience base that would be ready and waiting when Red Ball came out. If you would have asked me in early 2018, I would have told you that once Red Ball was up and running, I was going to stop making Crime Junkie.
1: So, Red Ball was incredibly important to her. It represented what she wanted to do with her career. But what exactly did she hope to accomplish with the program? For that, Let's turn to an article written by Peter White that appeared in Deadline Hollywood. White's article revealed that Red Ball was planned to be a six-part series. Flowers would actually end up only doing four episodes. And it also revealed that Flowers was working with a Beverly Hills-based talent agency on the project. Flowers apparently had big dreams, saying,
0: There's been a lot of talk in the television world about how we could turn this show into a series. Once it's out and fingers crossed the police is happy.
1: It sounds then as if Flowers viewed Red Ball and the Burger Chef case as a way to kickstart a career in Hollywood. Needless to say, there's been no talk we are aware of about turning the disappointing Red Ball into a television series. But hints of that lost iteration of Red Ball remain. In the spring of 2019, for instance, Flowers' crime junkie Facebook group posted an image of her trying to look soulful and sad as she gazed off into the distance with the Speedway Burger Chef building behind her. The accompanying text indicated that Flowers was in the process of shooting a video trailer for her audio podcast. As far as we can tell, other than this contrived posed photo, no traces of the video trailer were ever released to the public. So what happened?
0: Basically, word got out that Dalton was cooperating with Flowers to an extent beyond what anyone imagined. That he was actually permitting her to have total unrestricted access to the complete Burger Chef investigative file. No one outside of law enforcement, not even family members of the victims, had previously been allowed to see even a page of this file. Now, Dalton was revealing it all to his podcast partner who is going to use it in a for-profit program in an attempt to jumpstart a career in Hollywood.
1: What made it all even worse, of course, was that I knew a detail, the flowers danced around, but never explicitly acknowledged. The fact that she had surrendered editorial control of her podcast to Bill Dalton of the Indiana State Police. So, in short, a public government agency was allowing only one person to see its records, and they were then controlling everything that person said about those records. Imagine what people would think if, say, the White House only allowed one reporter to have official records, and that person could only print what the president allowed them to publish. It goes against the spirit of the First Amendment and the right of the people to be freely informed about the actions of their government.
0: If Flowers' statements to the media weren't bad enough, The ISP's response to Davis's 2019 complaint spells things out clearly.
1: In her response to the formal complaint, ISP legal counsel Cynthia Forbes lazily threw around a bunch of Merriam-Webster dictionary definitions to bolster her argument, like a high school student trying to pump up the word count of an essay. Then she finally got to the point and gave the ISP's version of the Dalton Flowers collaboration. She identified Flowers not as a multi-millionaire podcaster, but rather as an agent of Crime Stoppers of Central Indiana, and said that Flowers offered to assist ISP in the investigation of the Burger Chef murders by featuring the case on her podcast, Crime Junkie. Forbes wrote that Dalton requested permission to work with Flowers, and that permission was granted, with the expectation that his approach would be, quote, similar to how ISP routinely works with other media outlets to gain attention and request assistance from the public for new leads.
0: That makes us wonder how exactly ISP works with other media since Forbes confirmed that Red Ball was editorially controlled by the state police, writing, ISP additionally retained the right to edit and have final review and approval of the podcast prior to airing. Is this how the ISP works with other media outlets?
1: Forbes went on to note that Dalton was not allowed to release or allow inspection of the, quote, records related to this case. Forbes wrote, Ms. Flowers was advised prior to inspecting records that they were confidential, not available to the public, and the information that she could use in her podcast was restricted to already publicly known information. Forbes appears there to, at the very least, be shading the truth. She says the ISP controlled the show, and Flowers looking at the files was fine because she agreed to only reveal previously released information. But that is not what happened. Flowers' podcast revealed quite a bit of previously unreleased information, and Bill Dalton knew this he called at least one person to warn them of some sensitive details that would soon be monetized on the Flowers program. This part of Forbes' argument, then, is based on an untruth. And the rest of her argument is not much stronger. She basically claims that Bill Dalton, who the ISP had put in charge of the files, simply did not understand how to handle the files and very badly screwed up potentially compromising a quadruple homicide case. But the ISP, or Dalton himself, should not have to take the hit. She wrote, ISP did not take lightly the denial of Davis's request. It cannot condone one employee's mistake as binding the agency against already established policy when the consequences are as severe as to jeopardize a quadruple homicide case. Perhaps the lesson there for the ISP is that they should not put someone in charge of files unless that person is actually able to manage those files. And that is apparently beyond the capability of Bill Dalton. Yet he remains in charge of this case, which suggests the ISP has confidence in him. We do not.
0: Now, let's take a moment to get into this whole state police controlling a media outlet thing, because I feel that's pretty important. I don't know if Flowers considers herself a journalist, but I am. And I want to stress that no reputable journalist would ever make a deal like that. It would be a total compromise of their integrity. If, for instance, Walmart offered me internal documents in exchange for controlling what I wrote about them, I would have no choice but to decline that deal. And frankly, the communications team at Walmart would never make such an offer. There's only one exception to this rule. You could take a deal like that if you fully disclosed it to your audience, giving them a chance to evaluate the information you present, knowing that it comes from a particular point of view other than your own independent judgment. So if, say, Jeff Bezos hired me to write his autobiography and allowed me to access internal Amazon documents as part of my research, that would be potentially fine. The key thing is there needs to be disclosure. Your audience needs to know who is controlling what they are getting. Because if I took such a deal with Bezos, readers would rightly assess that I was a paid shill and no longer an independent journalist. But Flowers did not disclose. She danced around it, talking about working with the ISP, but never revealing that they controlled the content and essentially served as producers. She gave little hints. She discussed on the program how Dalton tried to help her book at least one guest and how he gave her at least one question to ask another guest. He did all of this, of course, while he was on the taxpayer's dime, and he did it all to assist in the production of a for-profit program.
1: This is all, to say the least, ethically dubious on the part of Ashley Flowers. But Bill Dalton arranging for information about his work to be given only to a person he controlled seems in many ways to be much, much worse. Before we go any further, let's take a moment to give you the flavor of how Flowers covered Dalton on the program, how he clearly wanted to be covered. This is from episode one.
0: Dalton's been a real cop. And if you work around real cops long enough, like I have, you can spot them. And it's not because of their distinctively cropped haircut or the way they always position themselves in public facing the door, or even that instinctual way their dominant hand creeps to their hip when something makes them uneasy. To me, it's in their eyes when they manage a smile. And I've thought a lot about this and what it is that I think is so different And I think it's because that when you see the worst in humanity, what people can do to one another, when you have to throw away your favorite suit because the smell of death won't wash out of it, or when you have to hold a man's brains in your hand on the side of a highway and watch him die and then go home to your wife and kids and pretend you worked a normal 9 to 5, there is something about living all of that, that when you see something good in the world, big or small, They appreciate it more than the rest of us do. In a way, I don't think we ever can. First Sergeant Dalton has seen all of that and more. He gave me that crinkle-eyed smile when he thanked me for working with them.
1: Anya, frankly, adores me, but I can never imagine her having the bad judgment to insert that type of over-the-top ode to my smile in an episode of Murder Sheet.
0: That's definitely not happening because full body cringe. And even if I did, Kevin would have the sense to take it out, but Dalton left it in. As awkward as that sort of thing is, it is not what bothered Chris Davis, then the host of the Circle City Crime podcast, a series which at the time was focusing on the Burger Chef murders. What bothered him was that it did not seem just or legal to give only one podcaster or one journalist access to the secret case files. He felt that if you gave access to one person, you should give it to everyone. There should not, in other words, be a privileged class of people who get access to public papers while others are denied.
1: We have, frankly, had some very serious differences with Davis over the years, but he was absolutely correct on this point. And the law was 100% on his side. Bill Dalton had badly messed up. By sharing the file with Flowers, he had, if one followed the law, made the entire file public. Because the law indicates that if you share a file with one person, you must share it with everyone. So Davis filed a complaint with Luke Britt, the public access counselor, asking to see the files. And that apparently is when the roof fell in for Flowers and Dalton.
0: If you take the ISP at their word, it was only at this point that they became aware of what Dalton was doing with Flowers, even though she often spent time at the state police post poring over the files.
1: But they claimed it was all news to them that Bill Dalton had been acting without their knowledge and certainly without their permission. According to the public access counselor in his opinion in Christopher L. Davis versus the Indiana State Police, Dalton was informally disciplined received employee counseling, and was re-educated on ISP records, protocol, and procedure. And remember, the public access counselor boasted of enjoying healthy relations with the ISP. They certainly showed that in this case, admitting that Dalton had badly messed up and writing that he had in fact committed rogue actions when he had not been given authorization to act in a particular manner. But... Britt added, since Dalton had been disciplined for his embarrassing screw-up, it did not count. The man the ISP put in charge of the files shared them with his podcast partner, which should have made them available for everyone if the law was followed. But since ISP as a whole did not tell Bill Dalton to do this, it just didn't count. This is like saying that if a FedEx delivery driver plows into your house, that FedEx can in no way be held liable because they did not specifically tell the driver to wreck your home. That seems to us to be an absolutely nonsensical application of the law, and we feel that public access counselor Luke Britt is wrong. Someday someone will challenge the counselor's application of law in this matter in court. Maybe we will even do that ourselves. Flowers contained a highly biased and incomplete account of all of this on Red Ball. She talked about people criticizing her. She used the plural they, but we believe she is primarily referring to Davis.
0: They were pissed that the police were using my platform to tell their story. And it was hard for me to understand why. All I wanted to do was help. I wanted to give the police a controlled outlet to tell the victim's story and to disseminate information to the public without fear that I was looking for a scoop or would do something that would irrevocably harm the investigation. I wanted to give them more than a soundbite on the news that they had no control over.
1: Please note the comments like that seem to show an active contempt for the work of actual journalists who go out and get information and report it to the public without first running it by the police for approval and of course her words about how the police deserved a controlled outlet seem again to make clear that red ball is just such a controlled outlet that she surrendered editorial control to the indiana state police outside commentators also picked up on this situation writing in indianapolis monthly reporter adam wren said dalton and flowers red ball series might just be the first narrative audio press release created in part by a taxpayer-funded law enforcement agency. It was also the first time that a law enforcement agency and a public access counselor had, in essence, worked together to ensure that a private individual would have the exclusive right to monetize investigative files. Because Flowers certainly did make money on this project, The Red Ball episodes are absolutely laden with ads. Flowers went on to further attack reporters who, unlike her, actually do reporting.
0: We live in a world where everyone is looking for the scoop. That thing that will give them clicks with no regard to how the information or names they are releasing could hurt the case forever. After the scoop's been got, they walk away.
1: The interesting thing is that after Flowers got her Red Ball scoop and the resulting downloads and clicks, she walked away from the Burger Chef case. Her words indicted herself.
0: And to top everything off, the final result, Red Ball the Podcast, simply wasn't very good. She announced that she wasn't going to discuss theories or do any investigating and said she was going to instead tell the victim stories. But listeners of the show came away with very little information about or understanding of Jane Freet, Ruth Shelton, Danny Davis, and Mark Flemons.
1: Instead, Flowers spent a great deal of time talking about how Bill Dalton has a new approach to the case, without ever really explaining what exactly that new approach is or what is accomplished. She also gives Dalton a great deal of credit for doing things that frankly should have been done much earlier, like digitize the case file. Dalton has some of his underlings working on this and is excessively praised for it. The whole series ended with Dalton giving a swaggering statement hinting at new evidence that could directly tie the killers to the crime. He does not reveal what that evidence is or how it ties anyone to anything and on that rather empty and inconclusive note the curtain comes down on red ball.
0: To some of you this all may seem like old news so why are we covering it now?
1: This situation deserves attention because the Indiana State Police has learned the wrong lessons from what happened and it is negatively affecting other cases.
0: Earlier this year A national crime show wanted to spotlight an older Indiana case that was not the Burger Chef case. This other case has never gotten the attention it deserves and in fact, has never gotten national coverage from a reputable outlet. So this could have been huge. It would put the case in front of new people who might have workable information and it would also have meant a great deal to the family. But there was a catch. The show would only produce an episode on the case if they had the cooperation of the Indiana State Police.
1: And let's be clear, they were not looking for the sort of cooperation that Bill Dalton gave Ashley Flowers. We believe they would have been perfectly satisfied if an Indiana State Police PR person sat in front of a camera for an hour or so and just discussed the basics of the case. That is all it would have taken. And as a result, this case would have gotten more attention than it has ever gotten before. The police could have potentially received new actionable information from the public and the family would have been comforted.
0: The ISP said no.
1: Someone from the ISP said it was because if they talked to the press about the case, they would have had to share every detail about the case with any reporter or podcaster who asked. It sounds to us as if the agency had badly misunderstood the lessons of Red Ball.
0: The Flowers-Dalton fiasco should have taught the ISP that it is folly for the agency to give one person access to investigative files and then to control the resulting work that person produces. Instead, it seems to have taught them not to talk with the press about cold cases at all. As a result, The ultimate legacy of Flowers' self-described passion project is that the police won't talk to the public about other cold cases, meaning that potentially solvable cases will remain forever unsolved.
1: In a 2019 interview with the college site Her Campus, Flowers spoke about her experience founding her podcast. She talked a lot about the business side of things.
0: From day one, I treated it not as a hobby or this cute creative thing, but like a startup business. I had my LLC before I even released an episode and I had a business and marketing plan. You can make a podcast for free. Anyone can do it, but this was going to be my full-time job. I was making a creative business and put almost half my entire life savings to starting it, not knowing if I would ever see a dime back.
1: She was clearly worried for nothing. Flowers continues to make money off of all of this. The four-episode run of Red Ball is full of ads. And that's not all. Variety's Todd Spangler reported in October that Flower signed a multi-year deal giving Sirius XM exclusive ad sale rights for Crime Junkie, along with the other AudioChuck programs. And Dalton still runs the Burger Chef investigation for the Indiana State Police. No change there. So, in the long run, The only ones who have paid any real penalty for this misconduct are those of us who want justice for the victims in other cold cases. This is the part of the show where we'd normally tell you to reach out to the ISP if you're upset about what happened. But to be honest, we don't think they'd care. Feel free to reach out to us, though, at murdersheet at gmail.com.
0: We'd like to thank Kathy Fry, Esther Ludlow, and Robin Warder for speaking with us for the show, as well as Chris Davis for filling us in on his recollection of the Red Ball situation check out once upon a crime and the trail went cold as well as esther's show let's talk about true crime specifically her bonus episode titled let's talk about the crime junkie plagiarism scandal we'll link to all the articles we mentioned in our show notes
1: thanks for listening to this episode of the murder sheet as always thanks to kevin tyler greenlee who composed the music for the murder sheet And who you can find on the web at kevintg.com
0: to keep up with the latest on the murder sheet please make sure to follow us on instagram and twitter at murder sheet and on facebook at m sheet podcast or by searching murder sheet if you enjoy listening to the murder sheet please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure and send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.
6: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences
0: you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.